Hi, it's Nick Brown, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. Welcome to the May Atoms. In the pre-internet era, in the days of non-digital photography, most families owned and treasured their albums of pictures. Often arranged chronologically by year, each series of collections defined lives. Unlike today's ubiquitous smartphone compilations hung out to dry online, these assemblages were defined by the tinge, brightness, garishness, for example, personifying the 1970s Polaroid and clarity. Over time, albums built up a folklore of their own, the CP of the tinge of the older ones a metaphor for good times. Whether they really were or not becomes impossible to objectively define, as this is a trick played by time itself, to which no one really becomes inured. The same is true of eras as individuals. The swinging 60s, I'm too young to have an opinion, the grim 1970s, I feel privileged to have been a part of them, the solipsistic 1980s, I take no sides on this, the weary fin de siècle 1990s. None of these are really true or really untrue. There's just no way of objectively testing what is ultimately a personal recollection and no way of quantifying the way in which the collective memory has been influenced by the way the stories were construed by the media of the respective eras. We don't know how events of 2020 will unfold. It's unlikely we'll know in a month or even 12 months. We don't know whether the landscape will be permanently altered by the story that is engulfing the planet, changing behavioural patterns or forcing them to change. But I do know that I no longer need to use the term that is now so all-consuming it would feel almost tautological to wheel it out. So what hue will render our albums from this year when in a generation's time we dust them off to retell the stories to our grandchildren? Sepia, monochrome, or an alternative we've yet to encounter, describe, experience, let alone articulate. It's gone midnight. There's still a row of children in emergency needing attention, and the ward phone rings what feels like every five minutes. Surely a thorough physical examination on each is enough to make decisions on overnight management. Unfortunately not. So, unless you formally tested, rather than presumed, the capacity and competence of the highly articulate, erudite 15-year-old you ended up seeing at 3am. The differences, though a source of confusion, are as important as Wheeler's thought-provoking editorially explains. The term Gillick competence entered medical vocabulary 35 years ago, introducing the concept of the capability or not of making independent decisions if aged under 16 years. In 2005, the Complementary Mental Capacity Act entered the arena, based on a default presumption of capacity for 16 to 17-year-old young people to conduct treatment independently of their parents. The term took on a statutory meaning, the possession of capacity. In short, Gillick competent children under 16 and capacitous young people, 16 to 17 years old, can provide consent as an alternative to relying on the consent of their parents. It is, of course, not always quite this simple. The child under 16 is, by default, presumed incompetent and must prove her competence by demonstrating sufficient understanding of matters. Not doing so potentially denies her autonomy. The corollary is that young people aged over 16 with presumed capacity can only have this rebutted by the establishment of incapacity, a two-stage process. Diagnostic, is there impairment in thinking, and if so, 
is this the reason for the inability to make the decision? A recent high-profile case has amply demonstrated the importance of this differentiation. For a former prophylaxis with such a strong track record, the history of vitamin K and its various prophylactic incarnations has been surprisingly uneven. Obstacles to smooth adoption, despite compelling evidence of effect in the prevention of vitamin K deficiency bleeding, are too complex to re-narrate in detail here. But controversies in the late 1970s and early 1990s hindered universal embrace. Shearer's editorial contextualises Zorinsky's Australian Paediatric Surveillance Unit study, which worrying trends of increased parental refusal, abstainers accounting for 63% of vitamin K deficiency bleeding cases in the 2006-2017 era, compared with 32% from 1993 to 2005, and a rise of 85% among those choosing home deliveries. Consecutive British surveys identified similar trends and a large Canadian study also found strong associations with deliveries at home and with vaccine refusal. We know from the Dutch that intramuscular prophylaxis, just a single early dose, solves all the logistical problems and human error-related issue home administration of oral doses weeks later involves and avoids potential malabsorption issues in oral dosing related to cholestasis. It is simply better. If this message isn't reaching parents or being heeded, we need to rethink why. The number of children in the UK on long-term home ventilation has increased near exponentially, from less than 100 children in 1990 to around 1,500 in 2015. There are many potential benefits, but also risks. Harrop analyses patient safety incident data relating to long-term ventilation using incident reports from England and Wales National Reporting and Learning System over five years. There were several recurring themes. Of more than 200 events, 40% were judged harmful. Common problems related to faults, the unavailability of equipment and staff competency. Sometimes it's easy to forget there is so much we can influence. Isn't it time to rest back control? Thanks for listening. Don't forget to check out the website adc.bmj.com and see you again next month. Thanks. Bye for now. <laughs>